So we turn in the Old Testament to the prophet Amos, reading the entirety of that first chapter. This is the sermon text for this morning as we begin a new series going through the book of Amos. So Amos chapter 1, the entire chapter, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word, God's word, Amos chapter 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants of the valley of Aven, and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden. And the people of Syria shall go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their borders. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds, with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So how are you feeling about our times? That is, when you take in all the various happenings of our world, you think good things are not so good. Well, most people nowadays are feeling pretty pessimistic. Between wars and superstorms, economic hardships and increased crime rates, pandemics and moral perversion, many get the inkling that things have never been worse. Particularly, it seems as if justice never works out. 
Evil politicians win another election. Tyrants seem to live forever. Murders go unsolved. The guilty get away, and the innocent get locked up. It doesn't take long for us to list off a dozen or so crimes or atrocities that have went unpunished. It makes you wonder if anyone cares, if God is watching. Well, we know that God is just, but how come his justice doesn't seem to make an appearance very often? Well, this burden of the faith is not new to God's people. Throughout the ages, the saints have wrestled with waiting on the Lord to set things right. And as we turn to the book of Amos, this is one of the lessons that the Lord has in store for us. Namely, that our God has everything under control. Now, for many of us, Amos is is a book not very well-traveled. It sits on the bookshelf of your Bible reading, untouched and gathering dust. For others who are more familiar with this prophet, Amos can be a head-scratcher. His writing style seems to jump around, his images jarring, and his message only bad news. Amos is a stranger with a hard-to-understand foreign accent. And so it's good for us to have a get-to-know-you session with Amos, which is precisely what we, are, what we get in the opening verse. The words of Amos. No family or genealogical data is disclosed about this ancient prophet. We do not know his father or what clan he hailed from. Yet we are told his day job. He belonged to the guild of shepherds, though this word for shepherds more accurately means herdsman or breeder. From what we can gather, this profession was a bit higher up than your average hired shepherd. That is, he oversaw and managed the herds of livestock, which could be either cows or sheep or both. From chapter 7, we learn that Amos herded livestock and tended sycamore fig trees. So basically, Amos is a rancher. He runs cattle and fruit trees. Likewise, the field, his field of operations is within the town of Tekoa, which lies about five miles south of Bethlehem. Now, Tekoa belongs to the tribe of Judah, and it sits on the edge between fertile, uh, fertile farmland and the dry wilderness to the east. This most likely means that Amos is of the tribe of Judah, which does stand out as most of Amos' ministry is, is against the northern kingdom of Israel. Amos is kind of like an American ministering in Canada. To his audience, he's an unwelcome and meddling foreigner, a distant relative you want nothing to do with. For even though Amos was born and raised a herdsman, the Lord forced a career change on him. As it says, the words of Amos that he saw. To see words means that Amos was made a prophet. In the Old Testament, prophets are taken up in visions by the Lord to see the heavenly throne room of God and to receive the Lord's message for his covenant people. Prophets are emissaries from God to his people. 
They preach his word and they prosecute the covenant against the people. Thus the Lord imposed on this herdsman to make him a prophet. Amos did not choose to be a prophet. He didn't volunteer for this preaching gig up north in Israel. Indeed, from what we can tell, Amos didn't want this job. Instead, the Lord compelled him to be a prophet. When the Lord is calling, it is to be voluntold. You cannot say no. Furthermore, we are informed of the times of Amos' ministry, his historical setting. He served as a prophet during the reigns of King Uzziah of Judah and King Jeroboam of Israel. And this royal timestamp is loaded with information and contextualization. First, these two kings had record-breaking long reigns. Their overlapping dominions lasted roughly from 790 to 750 B.C. So we have a 40-year window for Amos. Now, other information suggests that his ministry might have been within the 770s or 760s, but we're not sure. Second, these two kings presided over times of noteworthy peace, expansion, and prosperity. In the south, Uzziah was a godly king doing good in God's eyes, who grew Judah nearly back to its glory under Solomon. Uzziah built up, fortified, and made Judah rich. The Lord rewarded his obedience. And this flourishing was even greener up north under Jeroboam. For in the three decades before Jeroboam took the throne, Israel had been in dire straits. The violent king of Syria, Hazael, which is Israel's northern neighbor, had defeated and plundered Israel severely. Hazael had conquered and annexed vast portions of Israel's real estate. Thus, before Jeroboam took office, Israel was at its weakest and smallest as it has ever been. But then Jeroboam inherited the throne and he turned it all around. Jeroboam reconquered all of, all of the territory of Israel and more. Indeed, Jeroboam stretched his dominion back to the borders of Solomon. And with these victories came peace, which brought with it free business and vast profits. Under Jeroboam, the economy boomed in Israel. The stock market broke records. Fat and happy was Israel with Jeroboam on the throne. Moreover, we know from the book of Second Kings that his prosperity was from the mercy and grace of God. In Second Kings 14, we read that the Lord saw the bitter plight of Israel, and so he delivered them through Jeroboam. The Lord mercifully blessed the reign of this king. Also, the success of Jeroboam was proclaimed through the prophet of Jonah. Yes, besides being swallowed by the big fishy, Jonah had a ministry, or Jonah had a ministry to Jeroboam, whereby he announced the Lord's deliverance. And the Lord's bountiful blessing of Jeroboam is even more impressive in that Jeroboam was not a pious king. 
He did evil in God's eyes as his forefathers had done. His political and economic success was contrasted with his religious wickedness. And all of this is crucial background for the words and ministry of Amos. Finally, we are told that Amos worked two years before the earthquake. Now, the land of Israel is no stranger to earthquakes. Yet their frequent rumbles are nearly all under a magnitude of four. They'll get a magnitude of five every uh, once in a decade or so, and a magnitude six every hundred years or so. Well, this quake of Amos must have been a big one, for it was still remembered long after. That is, in Zechariah 14, this earthquake is referred to, and Zechariah dates 225 years after Amos. Sadly, though, we cannot date this whopper of an earthquake. But such a prophetically recorded quake is more about God's word than it is about seismology. For Amos, to note the earthquake means that it is a sign and message from God. Without the word, a quake is just a quake, rather meaningless. But with the word, earthquakes become poignant, significant. And the Lord shakes the earth only for something big. The earth trembles at God's glory, at his wrath, which is exactly the first words out of Amos' mouth. The Lord roars from Zion. The Lord reveals himself and speaks as if a lion. And kids, you know from going to the zoo or from nature programs that lions are scary. When the king of beasts bellows, you hide. So as a divine lion, the Lord releases a booming growl. The hunt is in his blood. He's ready to pounce and devour. Indeed, the Lord is not your average lion, for he also utters his voice from Jerusalem. And this phrase for uttering his voice most often is associated with thunder. Lightning flashes and the Lord thunders his voice from the heavens. So God roars as a lion and booms like a thunderclap. And these ear-splitting decibels from Yahweh mark his coming as the divine warrior. When the Lord marches out as a man of war, ready to conquer and kill, he sounds like a celestial lion breathing thunder. And the Lord armors up like a knight in order to judge. The roaring word is the Lord coming forth to condemn and punish. Amos announces here the day of reckoning and doom, the day of the Lord's fury. Thus God's thundering roar issues from Zion. Jerusalem is the temple city of the Most High, and within the sanctuary of Zion, the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. Zion is God's throne on earth. Indeed, the temple was considered to be the link between heaven and earth. Via the holy temple, heaven came down and touched this brown earth. 
The Lord is sovereign over all of creation, but he chose his uh, local throne to be in a specific sacred spot in Zion. And from his royal throne in Jerusalem, the Lord's justice pours forth to his people and to all the nations. Thus, as the roar of Yahweh goes forth, note the creation is undone. Now, as you may know, the summit of Mount Carmel is adorned with green and lush forests. The grazing pasture lands are painted with verdant life. But when God thunders, the green life turns dead brown. Grass withers and trees die when the divine warrior speaks in wrath. When God walks upon the earth in salvation, Creation rejoices with flowers and fruit. But when nature dries up and mourns, the Lord has come to judge. Amos' first sermon is an oracle of doom and destruction. Thus the Lord aims his roar against the nations. He machine guns a series of sermonettes at the various natures, nations that surround Israel and Judah. Damascus is the capital of Syria to the north. Tyre is on the northern coast. The Philistines lie on the western border. Edom to the south. And Ammon and Moab rest to the east. Now for the Lord to issue judgments against these nations is significant. For in the ancient world, God, in the ancient world, gods were considered limited to their own country. That is, the god of Moab's jurisdiction was restricted to the borders of Moab. In fact, we have examples in scripture of pagans mocking Yahweh as only the god of the Israelite hill country. When the nations defeated Israel in battle, they laughed at Yahweh was merely a parochial deity of a a small god of a pathetic people. But nothing could be farther from the truth. The Lord is the master of creation. He is the sovereign over all nations. Universal is God's jurisdiction. International is his lordship. Yahweh is the Lord of the nations, and these foreign peoples are under his judicial power and prerogative. Therefore, the Lord condemns each of these nations for transgressions. For three transgressions and for four. Now, this three and four pattern is a poetic device which communicates several or many. The Lord is counting, and for a number of sins, the Lord is going to punish Also, this three and four here are likely meant to be added. Three plus four equals seven, which is the number of complete completion and totality. For a full number of sins, seven, God will bring ideal retribution, sevenfold judge justice. Next, the word here for transgression has the sense of covenant rebellion. It means to break a covenant law. It is a crime and felony of a vassal against the suzerain. Yahweh is Lord God over the nations, and they are his rebellious and felonous vassals. Of course, this begs the question, what covenant connects the Lord and the pagan nations? Well, it's not the Mosaic covenant. 
the Sinai Covenant, with all its specific laws and stipulations, was ratified by blood between Yahweh and the nation of Israel alone. Instead, the nations are under the Noahic Covenant of Genesis 9. The Common Grace Covenant is signified by the rainbow, a phenomenon of nature that all people can see. And even though the Noahic covenant could not be invalidated by human sin, God kept his promise to sustain the world despite man's wickedness. Nevertheless, under the rainbow, the Lord called for a basic level of justice. He demanded accountability for murder and bloodshed. That is, the nations were under the natural law of God. He punished them for violations of the law written upon the heart of mankind. Now, sure, natural law and the Mosaic law don't contradict. They agree insofar as they overlap. But natural law is much more skeletal compared to all the detailed flesh and skin of the Mosaic law. Notably, under the natural law of the Noahic covenant, God graciously allows for religious pluralism. He doesn't judge the nations for their idolatry. Sure, he holds the individuals accountable for their idolatry, but he mercifully permits the nations their own gods. As long as the nation doesn't get super arrogant with its idol worship, God's common grace overlooks the nation's pagan worship. Thus, notice what God condemns these nations for. He mentions nothing about their worship, their gods, or their religious rituals. Instead, he zooms in on what could be generally categorized as war crimes. These are things that international custom and propriety considered heinous. Now, there isn't so much a law code that forbade these acts, Rather, everyone just knew them to be wrong, bad, as going too far. They're like a Genevan convention of common sense. Such felonies are unnaturally evil. Thus the Lord condemns Damascus for threshing Gilead with an iron sledge. Now, Gilead is part of Israel on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And an iron sledge was rolled over grain to thresh it with iron teeth and spikes. The image is metaphorical here, but the image is that of a human being being steamrolled, but the steamroller is not smooth, but it has jagged teeth. It's a picture of gross violence of cruelty to both humans and to the land. That is, this barbarity tortures humans to death without mercy, and it ruins the land so that it will not support life. Likewise, verse 11, Edom is judged for chasing his brother with the sword and casting off pity. Yet this phrase for casting off pity is probably better taken as destroying the women. Literally, it says the wombs. Edom then was not merely, did not merely kill the men, but they slaughtered female non-combatants. And as everyone knows, it is a far worse crime to kill an unarmed woman than to slaughter male soldiers. So also in verse 13, 
Ammon is indicted for cutting open pregnant ladies. To slice up a pregnant lady was considered the epitome of savage, inhumane war violence. It was a crime of abomination, for with one swing of the sword, it killed and it aborted. It was a sin against reproduction, the family, for it wiped out the current generation and the next generation. Moreover, Ammon severed pregnant ladies merely to expand its borders. For a greedy land grab, Ammon committed brutish war felonies. Next, the Lord judges both Gaza, that is the Philistines, and Tyre, for handing over a whole people to Edom, verse 6 and verse 9. Now, as best as we can tell, this crime refers to merciless slave trading. This isn't against slavery in the abstract, but it refers to a heinous form of it. The whole people here refers to some smaller town or community. Then Gaza and Tyre swept in to capture and sell into slavery every last man, woman, and child. This is human stealing at its worst, for no one was spared. The 80-year-old was cashed in along with the two-year-old infant. Moreover, selling them to Edom meant that most of them went to Edom's vast copper mining industry. And being a slave in a copper mine cuts your life short fast. And to make matters worse, Tyre gets rich off a man-stealing in violation of a brotherhood covenant. Now, this refers to a brother treaty between two partners. It's a contract and a a sworn alliance to help each other. But to violate a sealed treaty of friendship is a deep felony against natural law that the Lord does not overlook. Finally, the Lord further condemns Edom for, quote, having a perpetual anger for keeping his wrath forever. This refers to unjust revenge and holding a grudge. That is, in the distant past, Edom was wronged by his brother, likely referring to Judah here. Yet even though many generations has passed, Edom repaid Judah for its past crimes. This violates the principle that kids should not be punished for the crimes of their fathers. This is an arrogant execution of generational retribution. Scripture is clear that generational retribution only belongs to God. Generational revenge is strictly forbidden to human justice and the courts of law. To avenge crimes of the distant past in the present generation only creates more heinous wickedness. In its hubris, though, Edom kept his wrath. He slaughtered violently the present generation for evils done in the far-off history. And common sense, natural law knows that this is a barbarity that should not be done. There's one further theme here, though, to note. 
As God indicts these five nations for their cruel war crimes, note that he doesn't stress the identity of the victims. The Lord isn't primarily concerned so much about who this happened to, but he focuses on the vile felony itself. Now, some of these were against God's people, as Gilead is mentioned, Edom's brothers, likely Judah. But this selling of a whole people into slavery, it makes no mention of what city was victimized. Even the despicable violence against the women isn't so much about the who, but about the abominable crime itself. The point being that the Lord notices and judges gross violations of natural law, period. For sure, God can do numerous things at once, but irrespective of the victim's rights or restoring some loss, the Lord roars against the evils of the nations themselves. Under the Lord's sovereign justice, you commit the crime, you will do the time. And when the war crimes are carried out without mercy, the Lord's wrath falls without pity. As the Lord repeats, against each of these nations, he sends fire. The Lord's fire will consume capital and castle. It devours kings and princes. The fire from heaven sends whole populations into exile and erases remnants from the record of history. Yet something stands out here about the Lord's punishments. Some of these judgments align well with history. That is, we know their fulfillments in history. For example, 2 Kings 16 reports of Syria being exiled to Kir, as foretold here in verse 5. Yet other others of the punishments seem to go beyond the historical. That is, as far as we know, they were not fulfilled in history, and they echo the tunes of final judgment. A day of whirlwind, verse 14, hints at the day of the Lord. The perishing of a whole remnant, and especially fire from heaven, this points to the final judgment of God at the end of history. These oracles then teach us that our Lord, or God, is Lord and judge of all history and nations. And he executes his justice within history. But ultimately, whatever barbarous violations of natural law go unpunished in history, these will be judged on the final day of the Lord. For us, it is often true that justice delayed is justice stayed. At times, if justice is not punctual, then justice cannot be properly rendered. But there is no time limit for the Lord. Slow or fast, time cannot spoil the Lord's perfect justice. Indeed, for us in the New Testament, this picture of final judgment here reminds us of who is the judge of the world. As Paul said in Acts 17, God is fixed today when he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he appointed through the resurrection of the dead. Jesus Christ, the victor over sin and death, is the one who will roar and thunder against the nations. 
As we read in Revelation 10, the angel that John saw was actually a revelation of Christ who called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring that sounded like thunders. Or in Revelation 6, the wicked world was terrified because of the wrath of the Lamb. Yes, Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills the Lord's thunderous roar from Zion. The man who died for us is the God-man who has the authority and power to judge. And what a comfort and glorious blessing this is for us. Who is the lion judge of the world? He is the one who is tender and merciful towards us in grace and through faith. Before Christ judges the world, he was judged for your sins imputed to him upon the cross. He was burned by the flames in your stead. Jesus loved you to be your sacrifice for sin so that in his love, how much more will Christ save you from the wrath to come. Indeed, your present justification in Christ is your guarantee of your resurrection unto life. United to Christ by faith, beloved, the final day judgment is not judgment for you, but it's your open acknowledgement that you are a redeemed child of God. As we hear Jesus roaring like a lion against the nations, we are reminded that he first speaks not as a lion, but as a savior. He speaks to you as your loving shepherd and elder brother. As our groom, Jesus speaks to us in compassion of his never-ending love. Christ will roar against the nations in the law, but he sweetly addresses us in the gospel of his free grace. Indeed, judgment is put off because now is the time of the gospel when we proclaim the gospel to the nations that Christ saves all who believe in him. This then gives us the living hope that no matter how bad the world looks around us, Our Savior and our King Jesus is in control. The justice of God in Christ is never foiled, never undone. Jesus will set right all wrongs. We just have to wait upon him and trust in his perfect, wise timing. For our hope is that of resurrection and life forevermore. Our hope is not in this age, not in the nations, not in this world, but it's in the world above where Christ himself is seated as our blessed Savior. Thus, believers rejoice in Christ and look to him on high and wait patiently until he comes again to put all things right and to wipe that last tear from our eyes. Amen. Let's pray.